News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about bracing ourselves for even more economic news. Why? Economic economists are predicting that the Bank of Canada is going to hike that key interest rate again, this time by three quarters of a percentage point potentially. And this could happen as early as Wednesday. That's when it's expected to happen because inflation continues to rage on around the world. In Canada, inflation hit a 39-year high of about 7.7% in May. That is well above that you know, 2% target rate that is usually aimed for. Year after year, we have gone by without even mentioning what the inflation rate is because it was averaging you know, between 1% and 2%. And now look at us, right? Record high after record high. So on June the 1st, the key interest rate was hiked by the Bank of Canada, brought it up to 1.5%. And now they're saying they might be willing to move in a more aggressive direction. So let's talk about this. Stephen Gordon is with us, a professor of economics at Laval University. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Would it surprise you to have another big interest rate hike like that? No, not at all. The the that 1.5% rate that you just mentioned is actually very, very low. Um, that's the kind of interest rate we would have if the Bank of Canada was trying to create inflation. And for the last 10 years or so, that's exactly what the Bank of Canada was trying to do. Inflation was typically underneath the uh, that 2% target. And the bank had been working hard to increase inflation and very low interest rates is how they do it. So that's, of course, that's, exact, that's not what we want to have right now. We want if we have inflation is way too high right now. We want to have interest rates that would be in the region where they'd be working to bring inflation down. Like right now, 1.5% is working to increase inflation, and the bank is trying right. to re- re- take that away. So can economists predict, like, is there any agreement among economists about what that ideal inflation rate should be? Well, sorry, well, we, it can be whatever you want. Um, we want 2%. Uh, that's, the, that's what the Bank of Canada's mandate is. The government uh, handed down that mandate, uh, renewed it in last December. That's a, that's a kind of a political choice, and the choice is we want we want two percent inflation. Um, how to get there? We sort of know the basic recipe: increase interest rates. We're not really sure uh, by how much, by how far, um, but that's basically what what the bank is. We do we do know that, and that's what the bank's going to do. So we've done that twice now, right? There have been two monthly big interest rate hikes, and yet interest rates, inflation continues to rage on. So does that signal that they perhaps might get tougher here? Oh yeah, they they have to just even with those two even increasing it twice, they up to two point two five percent. That's still a very low interest rate. That's not even that's nowhere near enough to even start reducing inflationary pressure. So. Um, they're, they're going to keep, keep going, and it'll take a while to bring it down. Like the, uh, we sort of know that these, um, whatever the bank does now won't really have much of an effect on the economy for another year or two. So in, in the high levels of inflation are kind of here with us for, for the state, and the bank is going to have to keep working at it. And we're talking about, we're talking about years here, not, not months. So in yeah. your opinion, then, what kind of a rate hike do you think would help send a signal to bring that inflation rate back in line? Well, and the fact that we're talking about, or we're all talking about it, and that it is a you know, fairly significant increase, um, it has sort of helped to um, 
Well, what we're really concerned is that uh, expectations about inflation would start to uh, get unanchored, as they say. Um, we, we, um, once inflation gets out of hand, uh, expectations of inflation almost become self-fulfilling prophecies. Uh, people keep people just bake in uh, inflation into all their negotiations, all their pricing, and the inflation just continues because everyone believes that the inflation will continue. Do you think so, that's happening now? Uh, that's the, the, we hope not. Uh, that's if the Bank of Canada is going to be aggressive. That's why it wants to make make sure that people don't uh, don't start thinking that oh, we're you know it's going to stay stay here forever. It might as well just learn to live with it. Right. So you're saying before it becomes the mindset, I kind of see that already happening though, Stephen, you know, like lots of wage negotiations going on in BC right now and everybody is, is factoring high inflation into their job offers. Yeah. And that's, uh, this is kind of why the Bank of Canada wants to be aggressive just to say, all right, you know, this, yes, it's happening, but it's temporary and we will get it back down. Um, You know, don't, uh, don't make long-term plans based on this. Right. You said this could take years, though. Yeah. Why, why do you say that? Well, just because uh, uh, we kind of know that it, it takes a while for, in, um, for uh, inflation to react to interest rate movements. And so they, the bank has just started. Um, a lot of the inflation will probably come, come more because we're hearing more about, you know, the oil prices are coming down. So some of those most recent factors uh, may have, may, you know, maybe may subsiding. So Inflation might start coming down from you know seven or eight percent down to you know, four or five percent, but even four or five percent would be too high. Right, it's amazing how our standards have changed, though. Right? Uh, yeah. What about what about global shipping? I know that shipping and supply route problems had also caused inflation to rise. What do we see happening there? Yeah, apparently that's getting better too. So this is like these are reasons to believe that you know that we will be able to get it back down, um, but. Once again, as long as long as they persist, um, there are people are going to start start thinking that they're permanent. Like it's the we kind of expect that these um, supply chain disruptions will unwind um, some eventually. You know, well, like those these things uh, have are just logistical problems. They'll they'll get sorted out. Um, the the so those things will go away. The in the, in the meantime, there's been well. Um, you know, a huge amount of uh, pent up demand from COVID. Everybody is all of a sudden now trying to, to uh, you know, to spend money on things that they couldn't before. I mean, we're hearing about the, the via, via rail strike. People want to travel. You know, people are having you know, airport, airports are jammed. People want to people want to travel. People want to do things now. So there's a lot of pent up demand, and excess demand is uh, also a way for inflation to increase. So, right. We're seeing, we're seeing both things. We're seeing um, supply disruptions and we're seeing increases in demand. What, at what point do you think the rate, the interest rate, will make a difference? Like, where, where is that tipping point that, okay, now the inflation rate is going to start having an impact on inflation? Um, it, uh, they don't, uh, they don't, but the bank doesn't seem to have uh, a number in, it, in its mind. They say they're going to keep increasing until it sees an effect. Um, like, there isn't. They might have estimates of where they think they'll ha- they'll probably end up going, uh, but they they don't want to put, make those public because well they might, they might be wrong. Um, these things are just estimates. Okay, so then how sh- what do you think consumers should be doing to brace themselves here, Stephen? What do you think we're going to be hearing from you know the business world and the Bank of Canada in the next couple of months? 
yeah, we're going to be hearing about interest rates that are, are going up and would be expected to go up more. So, yeah, uh, the, the days of low interest rates uh, for, you know, long time, for long periods of time, they're over, um, at, least for, at least for the next few years. Okay, so brace ourselves for more. Do you think Canadians are responding like that, though? Because it seems like they want to go out and still treat life the way it was before the pandemic, and that's just not happening. Well, you do see it in housing. Yeah, like the, the, the people are now, are now um, being a little bit more, um, more sensible about, uh, uh, about about taking on, uh, on mortgage debt because interest rates, uh, mortgage debt is going are going up, and so you know, buying you, you, you're not going to be buying, aren't going to, be able to borrow quite as much. Uh, to to buy a house and that's that's uh, taking some pressure off the housing prices. That's also a big adjustment for a lot of people too, right? Just the ability that you're not going to be able to go and get money as easily as you were able to get money before. Yep, and uh, you know anybody who is counting on low interest rates keeping you know propping up high uh, housing prices and people counting on high you know high, high values of their house, uh, yeah, they're gonna, they might be in for a surprise as well. All right, more to, always more for us to talk about, Stephen. Thank you for your time. <laughs> That's Stephen Gordon, professor of economics at Laval University, talking about bracing ourselves for another Bank of Canada uh, interest rate hike expected on Wednesday. And this time we're talking uh, potentially, they estimate, three quarters of a percentage point. The last two hikes had been half a percentage point. And the Bank of Canada since then has signaled they are willing to get more aggressive because those inflation rates month after month remain stubbornly high, 7.7% in May. So even higher, three quarters of a percentage point expected on Wednesday. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, healthcare will be the hot topic at the Premier's meeting, which is kicking off in Victoria today, because right across the country, province after province, we're seeing the same situation unfold. Delays for patients, doctor shortages, nursing shortages, you name it. And those on the front line say it's time to come up with a concrete action plan. Joining us now is Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Smart. Thanks for having me. What are you hoping to see come out of these Premier's meetings? I hope what we're going to see is a real commitment to get serious about the state of the healthcare system and to start collaborating between levels of government towards solutions. I think so much of why we've gotten here has been a lack of political will to really address the systemic issues that are plaguing our healthcare system and preventing Canadians from having the access and quality of care that they should be getting. And I think this meeting is an opportunity for the premiers to realize that by working together and with the federal government and with all of us who actually do the work, there's a, an opportunity to improve the system and, and make it sustainable and of high quality moving forward. And I know several premiers, including BC's premier, John Horgan, has talked about money, that they need more money from the federal government. Is that the fix here? I think it's part of the fix, but I certainly don't think it's the whole fix. If you look at the amount of dollars Canada spends on health care, we're at the very top end for other comparable countries. But we're not seeing the same quality or outcomes in our system that other countries are generating. In fact, we rank very near the bottom in terms of the quality of our system. So I think we need to realize that given the significant investment we're making in healthcare, which is appropriate, we need to make sure it's an outcome data-driven system that's based on accountabilities, and those accountabilities need to ensure that patients are getting timely and high-quality care. And right now, that's not what's happening. And if we just put more dollars into something that's not working well, it's not going to solve that problem. So I hope the conversations run deeper than just talking about budgets. So how do we do that? How do you create accountability in the system? 
Well, there's lots of ways to do that. I think one of the biggest challenges we have right now is the way we utilize data. We don't have a data-driven system, meaning we don't measure often the right things. We don't provide feedback on the type of care people are getting, how we're utilizing aspects of the healthcare system. And that could be really changed by leveraging the data that's generated in electronic medical records. So that's one thing that matters, I think. And I also think we need to look at is funding tied to outcomes and are we seeing those outcomes for the investments? And again, right now, we don't really necessarily do that type of analysis in our system. So I think there's ways of changing uh, the way we look at things, the way we use data to make sure that we are seeing more accountability and more outcomes-driven decision-making. Have we not tried to do this? Have we not been kind of moving towards, you know, computerizing things, digitizing the system? We have that, but unfortunately, it's been very not connected. So we don't have a lot of interoperability between data systems. We have challenges with data governance in this country. Um, We're not always utilizing the information for clinicians to give people feedback on the care that they're doing. So it's really in its infancy, I would say. And the other issue is the way we're using electronic medical records right now has actually really increase the administrative burden on physicians, and that's been identified as one of the key sources of burnout. So I think we need to use these tools effectively, uh, but in a way that actually lets people do their job, which is caring for patients and not just spending more time behind a computer screen. Okay, so what would you like to see come out of this today then? Like, yes, they're going to be talking about money, but what, what, do you, what advice would you give them? I think my advice would be, you know, let's own this problem collectively. Let's recognize that there's no easy fixes. You know, we did not get to the state of the healthcare system overnight. It wasn't one level of government. It wasn't one political party. This has been a slow decline over the last 20 to 30 years that's been brought about by sort of tinkering at the edges of something that really needed a new look and a new way of moving forward. So I think if we, what I would suggest to the premiers is, you know, let's acknowledge that for what it is. We know there's no necessarily quick fixes here or simple things. There, there's some work to be done. But if we could map out a plan in the short, medium, and long term, identify some key priorities, we're not going to be able to fix everything at once and get some collective action around those things, then I think we see some substantive changes that we could continue to build on. So I hope that they're willing to acknowledge that. And certainly there's many of us that are willing to be at the table to work on those solutions. We'll see what happens. Dr. Smart, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Catherine Smart, who's the president of the Canadian Medical Association, weighing in on the meeting starting in Victoria today. So these are premier's meetings that happened. This is the first in-person premier's meeting that has happened since 2019. It will also be the last one that Premier John Horgan participates in. He is actually chairing these meetings right now because he is head of the kind of premier's uh, council. And this will be his last kind of turn doing that before he steps down. So there's a lot going on here, but their big push is going to be talking about the healthcare system. Because I know it's tempting to think that it's here in BC that we are really impacted by this waiting, you know, waiting, waiting, waiting just to see, get a referral to a doctor, waiting for a surgeon, whether waiting for that actual surgery or can't get a family doctor, can't get in to talk to anybody about your health concerns. It is not just in BC. This is happening right across the country. I'm actually seeing more and more stories about this in Ontario too, where the things that we've gotten used to hearing about, unfortunately, things like, you know, ERs and small towns closing for the night because they have staffing shortages and all that. More and more of those stories are popping up right across the country. So it is a countrywide issue. It is going to be top of mind, the agenda at these premier's meetings, which kick off today. The question though is, what will the federal government do in response? Premiers are going to say, we want more money. 
But as Vaughn told us earlier, and as Dr. Smart also said, it's not necessarily about more money. What are the provinces willing to do to change things too? What do you think uh, is something that they should do? Notice the Vancouver Sun has an interesting story this morning too about foreign trained doctors still kind of waiting there with their hands up saying, hey, we can help out with this if you would just help us get our credentials and move things along a little faster too. Is that one of the things you think we should be doing? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know that today the industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, says he will be meeting with the CEO of Rogers and other telecom companies to emphasize that Canada really could not and should not go through what it went through late last week with that Rogers outage. Pretty much paralyzed everything right across the country. One company having a technical issue did that to the economy. So what needs to be done to prevent something like this? Is this a wake-up call to the government? Well, joining us now is Michael Geist, who's the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa. Good morning, Michael. Oh, good morning. Do you think this was a wake-up call? I think it sure ought to be, and it certainly was, I think, for many Canadians. It remains to be seen whether the government decides to wake up about it. But I think for many of us, myself included, uh, we put a lot of eggs in the Rogers basket and found when there was an outage of the sort that we had a couple of days ago, it all communications quite literally stopped for an extended period of time. It was pretty disorienting and raised such a, a wide range of concerns from payment services to access to emergency and government services, and it's the kind of situation that we simply can't have a repeat of. Yeah. How would you rate the response from Rogers on this? Well, it wasn't great, um, both in terms of the information that was coming forward to people. Um, it took quite some time to get an understanding of what was taking place, and it appears that the company itself didn't really know uh, for quite an extended period of time what was happening. There are still people, at least as of you know this morning or certainly last night, that had said that they still did not have connectivity. That's not the case for the majority, but there are still some that are struggling in this regard. And so I think there was a, a great deal of uncertainty associated with it. It's admittedly a tough situation to be in for the company, and it's tough, of obviously, to communicate with people when these things are taking place. Many people are, are lost from a communications perspective, uh, but there's got to be measures that can be taken, uh, both in the short term to deal with the outages and in the broader, longer term, in terms of our competitive environment, in terms of the redundancies that are put forward and some of the broader policies to ensure that uh, the likelihood of this happening again on this scale is mitigated. Well, let's start with those short-term measures. What do you think needs to be taken here? Well, you know, we've got the, the industry minister, as you mentioned, off the top meeting with uh, the CEO. And you know, I think this government has been far too cozy with the large telecom companies. You know, they've been quite happy to save a rattle with the big Internet companies. And while there are undoubtedly issues there, I think one of the things we learned over the weekend is just how dependent we are on telecoms. And, you know, so much rides on this, and it, it comes down to both ensuring that there are the appropriate safeguards in place to mitigate against this, to ensure that there are backups and considering different possibilities about how we might explore that, to ensure, for example, that access to 911 simply doesn't fail at all. And while there is supposed to be a system in place that allows for that kind of access on cell phones, even if you don't have proper connectivity, 
Um, it's fairly clear that it did fail for some people, and certainly people, for example, who have home phones may have found themselves shut off completely, and that's just not good enough. And so that's the regulator getting involved. And then at the governmental level, I think they've got to be thinking very hard about whether or not they're going to give a pass to the merger between Rogers and Shaw. Uh, the last thing we need is further consolidation in an industry that is already too consolidated and that the big three are already too powerful. Is this, do you think, the nail in the coffin for that deal? Because already the government had been hesitant, we saw from the Competition Bureau, to approve this. So does this kind of the wake-up call to say, we're not doing this? You'd hope so. But, you know, the historically... The the very reason the company was even willing, these companies were willing to go forward with something that frankly should have been a non-starter from the beginning, given the state of competition in Canada, is that there's been a deep reluctance of the government to challenge these kinds of mergers. In some ways, a merger that took place in Manitoba between Bell and MTS provided the playbook. And you know, one, one suspects that the companies took a look at that and said, well, they didn't stand in the way of that deal. We can follow roughly the same approach and, and hopefully get it forward. Now, there's been some pushback, as, as you noted, from the Competition Bureau. But in light of, of these events, I've got to think that, that there are people in the ministerial office that say this is creating, this created havoc. And for us to, to give a pass to something that, that increases the risk, given that it increases our reliance on a single company, just isn't something that we can entertain at this point. Right. I'm sure the company will say, oh, listen, this was a one-off, but it wasn't, was it? Because this happened within the last year or so. Absolutely. It's not a one-off. And in some ways, I think we, you know, we, we can recognize there are going to be outages. Uh, the question is more, how do you respond and what steps do you take to deal with those kinds of things? And unfortunately, you know, we don't have a, a hard policy that, that addresses things like compensation in these circumstances. It seems to me that um, you can make a pretty compelling case that while the, industry, well, yeah. the airline industry isn't a model for much of anything right now, there is at least statutory rules that apply when your flight is delayed beyond a certain period of time. Surely we ought to have something like that for outages uh, in this sector as well. Surely there ought to be mechanisms that we can take place that we can have even third-party providers that share spectrum or have access to multiple kinds of spectrum that can provide services that can flip from one spectrum to another to where outages occur. Michael, do you think this worries the other telecom companies as well? Because now they're afraid that, oh boy, we're going to have to deal with the fallout from this. Well, undoubtedly, all of them are, are sort of going to be uh, going to be in the, in the firing line, so to speak, from the, the minister. It happened to be Rogers, and as you mentioned, it has been Rogers before, which I think um, for many raises some big issues. Uh, but at the same time, it could be someone else and, you know, a TELUS or a Bell. And the fact is that, you know, we are so dependent on all three of those players right now that there is a, there is a real need to address what has been a long-standing concern, and that is the lack of competition in Canada. And that has fueled not only the high prices that I think Canadians recognize that they're, they're subject to, but even beyond that, the kind of reliance that we saw take place over the weekend when suddenly you can have millions of Canadians lose their ability to communicate. Yeah, that seems like it cannot be acceptable, like it cannot be allowed to stand. So is diversification in the industry the answer? Would we not have a problem like that if we allow that, if we force through some some diversification here? Well, I think certainly that that's part of the solution, to be sure. I mean, I think we can think about better ways to ensure that there is more cooperation between the various networks so that we are reliant solely on a single network. But absolutely, 
we need to find new competitors come into this space that I think ups the, ups the game, increases the amount of choice, and especially if we think of service-based providers. Uh, so what we have with these big three are what's known as facilities-based providers. They're the ones that have you know, built the tower, so to speak. But if you've got uh, a layer on top of that, different kinds of other providers who purchase access from multiple of those facilities-based providers. In other words, they just say, we can touch the different kinds of spectrum and offer it up really with a flick of a switch. That's the kind of service a lot of people might say, hey, you know what, I love the prospect of essentially proofing myself against the prospect of downtime from one service by knowing that this provider is going to switch me as needed. Right. Okay. But we've talked about that for years, Michael. Why is it so hard to make that happen? Well, we've got a government that has been just so reluctant to take this on in a serious way. And and at the end of the day, there is such a major political dimension and regulatory dimension. We've had a CRTC that, um, especially in recent years under the current chair, Ian Scott, whose term is now coming to an end, um, has been seen as being very cozy with some of the, with the bigger telecom companies, has, has really shifted away from a more consumer-focused agenda that we saw under some of the prior chairs. And the government itself, I think surprisingly in the, in the last number of years, has really found itself very supportive of the the big three telecom companies. It, it it it's when it's been looking for a villain, it's looked to companies like Google and Netflix and and Facebook, and right. it's been very comfortable targeting those companies. There are undoubtedly some serious issues with those companies, but the fact that they've given a pass to our big telecom companies that hit Canadians directly in the pocketbook, and now as we learn, hit them directly in terms of basic access, it's a huge issue. Okay, so what are the chances of Michael? Like, honestly, do you think anything's going to change as a result of this? Admittedly, it's hard to be optimistic. As I was talking with someone last night and saying, you know, the minister is going to be very angry today, and the next time um, that this happens, he'll be very, very angry, um, <laughs> and the third time he'll be very, very, very angry. Uh. But, you know, we we need to see a, a real kind of commitment. And I think, you know, in some ways it starts not only with what comes out of these meetings, but there is going to be a new CRTC chair appointed within the next couple of months. And that will be a real signal. Do they put someone in place that is focused and experienced in the telecom sector, recognizing the reliance we have? Or do they continue this focus on, you know, can con on the network and broadcast related issues and seemingly leave the telecom sector, not unregulated, but give them largely a pass? We will see. Uh, Michael, thanks for that. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate that. That's Michael Geist, who's the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa, talking about the Rogers outage, which was not just inconvenience, really doesn't seem to accurately just, you know, talk about what really happened with this Rogers outage. But it was a huge impact to people right across the country. Uh, And this is a sign that people are very unhappy about that. So today, the industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, will be meeting not just with the Rogers CEO, but the heads of other telecom companies too, to say this cannot happen again. But Will it just be empty words or will Canadians get what they've always wanted? And that is more competition in that industry. If you want to weigh in, let me know how that impacted you. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, it is still chaotic out there, particularly if you're trying to travel through an airport somewhere. So it's juggling. It's a lot of, you know, making sure you get there on time. Your flight doesn't get delayed or canceled. I mean, some airlines have already announced that they're decreasing their flight services. Airports are also just canceling flights as well, telling airplanes they can't handle the, you know, the capacity that is coming to their airports. So how is all of this impacting tourism. This is the industry that was hoping this was going to be the summer of travel to bring people back. Is that happening and how is the industry having to adjust? Joining us now is Walt Judas, CEO of the BC Tourism Association. Good morning, Walt. Good morning, Simi. Boy, Walt, it must feel like if it's not one thing, it's another the last couple of years. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday. There's probably still about 10 things that we have to deal with as an industry to get back on track. And yes, these uh, travel inconveniences are certainly high on the list to be sure. But I, while it's no comfort per se, but I do know Canada or British Columbia is not the only destination that is experiencing these travel delays. It's really the world over. In fact, if you travel to France, which is one of the most visited countries in the world, there's always a strike there. And most recently, a strike with the trains really wreaked havoc with travel throughout Europe. So we're not alone in this, but yes, we would uh, definitely like to see a different scenario this summer as people, there is pent up demand and people want to travel. And, uh, and this is certainly an obstacle for people who want to travel further afield. Do you think or do you get the impression that people are perhaps changing their plans? I've heard that from quite a few people saying, you know what, I'm just not going to do it. I thought I was going to go to XYZ and I'm now I'm not going to. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. In fact, we know that to be the case from international visitors wanting to come to British Columbia, whether it's seeing the images on television of lost luggage or just knowing that they might be delayed, they're either deferring their plans or they're staying very local. And in fact, we're seeing a real uh, boom in domestic visitation. That is people choosing to jump in the car and travel elsewhere in British Columbia. They've certainly rediscovered our province during the course of the pandemic. And they're doing that again versus jumping on a plane and heading elsewhere. So change in travel patterns in the interim, but at the very least, people are still willing to travel. And that bodes well for our industry. Right. So perhaps will those domestic numbers make up for maybe a little bit lower international demand? Certainly in volume, but not necessarily in spending. And while we are seeing increases across the board for hotel room rates, by way of example, as we've talked about before, international visitors spend anywhere from three to five times more than domestic visitors. So there's still a revenue hit to businesses at the same time. Domestic is really what we've come to rely on in the last couple of years. And that's certainly been the case this year so far. Okay, so then locally here, are we up to speed? I know the other thing is that there's just not enough capacity, right? Like there's just not enough workers in a lot of these industries. And how is how is Vancouver faring in that? Well, we saw downtown occupancy in the month of June at about 85%, which is pretty typical. We're very close to what we were in 2019 in terms of uh, occupancy. And in fact, the average daily room rate is up compared to 2019 in the restaurant sector. We're seeing even an increase in the number of people going to eat in restaurants compared to 2019. So there are several segments 
that are firing on all cylinders. At the same time, we could be doing even better if we have the amount of uh, staff that's needed for each individual business. So as you know, you might see a retail outlet that closes earlier than normal. Restaurants aren't open for lunch in some cases. Wings of hotels remain closed just simply because we don't have the number of people that are needed to operate at full capacity. And that's a problem across all sectors, but for the tourism sector in particular, we see that as an issue to be dealing with over the next number of years. Okay, a number of years, though. Is that how long do you think it's going to take to, to ramp all that back up? No question. And, uh, you know, there are many reasons that uh, we're challenged, as I mentioned, as are other sectors. Part of it is demographics. There just aren't as many young people in the workforce today, not, a, not uh, that many that are entering tourism careers, to be sure. We're really absent of temporary foreign workers, which represents about 5% of our uh, workforce. But with the uh, delays, with the labour market impact assessments and people just unable to get into the country, we're missing that segment that we desperately need, not to mention immigration was curtailed over the past couple of years, and we often rely on immigrants again, to round out our workforce. So until we ramp back up again and we do things like allow immigrants that are of the lower-skilled nature to become permanent residents or ultimately citizens and fast-track that segment of the temporary foreign worker uh, population, will be challenged for a number of years. Do you feel like, okay, you know, we'll have to let that happen as it plays out because the demand will still be there? You think eventually people will come back? Eventually, people will come back, no question. But uh, I think employers are doing everything possible to recruit staff that they need. But again, we're challenged by the changing demographics. A lot of people have retired. Other people have moved on to different uh, industries. And so there's a lot of things that we need to be doing in the next couple of years. Now, it's very difficult, obviously, with operators doing everything they can to keep the doors open as long as they can with uh, the amount of visitors that they have. But I think it's something that we'll have to tackle uh, even more deliberately in the fall. And operators are being creative, to be sure. They're finding ways to work through their sector associations to bring in people from other countries with a specific skill set. They are certainly offering overtime. I've heard of hoteliers who are working the front desk or even doing housekeeping just so they can provide the level of service that people have come to expect. So we've got to be creative. We've got to be aggressive. We've got to compete. You know, we're seeing um, pay rates increase across the board fairly significantly just so we can continue to recruit and retain staff to meet the needs. All right. All right. As always, Walt, thank you for your time. My pleasure, Simi. Thank you. Walt Judas, CEO of the BC Tourism Association, wondering if your travel plans have changed because of what's been going on out there and uh, you know, lineups and waiting and gas prices, you name it. You can email me, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Let's talk about invasive muscles. Why, you ask? Well, that is because I'm reading a lot about them lately. Turns out that the Ministry of Environment said the BC's Conservation Officer Service did its largest ever invasive muscle decontamination decontamination, uh, recently, and that's because they had learned about an infested barge that was heading in BC's direction from Lake Ontario, and it was supposed to be for industrial use, and they managed to intercept it, send it off, and get it decontaminated contaminated and they said this would have been disastrous and they're seeing more and more boats where this is happening. So I wanted to talk about what's so invasive about these muscles. Why is BC on such high alert about this? Gail Wallen is with us now, the Executive Director of Invasive Species of BC. Gail, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having us. I don't think people fully understand, Gail, the kind of work that goes in, especially at this time of year, to protecting BC from invasive species, do we? No, and most people aren't paying attention enough to sort of what they're moving around accidentally when they're out boating or or playing or whatever. So this is a time to be alert, to take action. Okay, and so why is it so important to stay alert on this? So aquatic invasive species are species that don't belong in British Columbia. They don't have their natural predators. And when they're introduced um, by us, either accidentally or intentionally, will actually overtake our ecosystems. So right now, what you're talking about today is zebra mussels that were coming in from Lake Ontario. Those were introduced in the 80s. They've changed the lake, and it's a huge lake back there. They've changed the lake because these mussels, which are not native to Canada, actually uh, change the water system. They compete for food supplies, and they're extremely prolific. So they'll they'll overtake... Um, the, the shorelines, they, they basically will uh, clog your boat motors, take over your hydro facilities. So huge economic impacts, disaster to the environment, and the best way to do it is prevent it. Okay, so what kind of efforts does BC make to try to prevent these? So uh, Western Canada has actually, the governments have worked together to have a network of protection so that when you enter the province, including BC, you're actually required for to do a mandatory stop and inspection by government, and they'll make sure your boat, if it's been in a high-risk areas like this one was, they'll they'll ensure that you're you have to stop have it inspected and decontaminate it where it's treated by trained people to remove both the the large adult mussels that are on the boat and also the microscopic larvae that are inside ballast waters or whatever. So both of that takes high temperature, high um, high temperature, a high flow of water in order to clean the boat. So you, we can all make a difference by clean, drain, drying our boats and equipment when we move from one area to the next, especially if we've come from outer province. Okay, so does this rely, though, on people being um, on the ball on this? Is like So it's self-reporting? So there's a, so in British Columbia, there's actually a, uh, it's a law that you have to stop and have your boat inspected. So that, that makes it regulatory. But in addition to that, there's definitely times when we move boats coming in from ourselves when we might have missed an inspection station. So 100%, everyone that's in British Columbia needs to be on the alert and needs to take responsible action in two ways. If you see something that's on your boat or motor or kayak, um, stop. And, and clean it, clean, drain, dry. And also, if you see something that's in a lake body that is you haven't seen there before, report it. And you can do that through bcinvasives.ca, uh, report, uh, report invasives on your phone app. There's many different ways. So you need to report, but you need to clean, drain, dry to prevent the introduction. 
Right. So when you hear about this story about, you know, we had our largest ever invasive muscle mm-hmm. decontamination because of this barge, what goes through your mind? That's a success story. So that means that that network of um, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, um, uh, Alberta and BC all working together, plus some of the states to say, hey, there's a barge headed your way that looks like it could be infested or is infested. And so the government was on the alert. They could take action. So that's success. They kept it out of BC because it, the system worked. But we always need it. It's like speeding. You're not supposed to speed, but some people do. Right. So let's be on the alert for and take our own actions to make sure our equipment is clean, drain, dry. It, it sounds like this is popping up more and more. Is it just that time of year? It's that time of year, plus people are more aware of invasives and they're becoming um, more responsible, which is good. Um, so it's a time of year, and there's thanks to the pandemic, more of us are moving around our province or our country than we were before, before we used to travel internationally, which also has a higher a high risk of introduction. So I, I think with more stay at home or stay in the country, uh, it's we're seeing more boats move and and then we need to be higher alert because those muscles are now in Manitoba. So it's Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec, and we don't want them here in, in the West. Okay, so stay vigilant out there. Being vigilant and making sure we take preventative action on everything, everything from gardening to boating, we can make sure we don't introduce invasive species to our waters and lands. All right, Gail, thank you for that. Thank you, and be alert to clean, drain, dry all your equipment. All right, sounds like good advice. It's Gail Wallen, the Executive Director of the Invasive Species of BC. This story, though, I was reading it, and I thought, boy, this is quite the effort that BC had to make there. So Gail's right. The Ministry of Environment received an alert about this barge that was on its way from Lake Ontario to be used in a lower mainland waterway for industrial use, and there was a lot of concerns about this. They knew the consequences. There's going to be a big problem if we just let this barge go in. So they had to track down the trucking company. They had to track down the barge. And this thing was big. Uh, and they had to divert it to a, a specially found warehouse in Richmond for a full decontamination. And get this, minister, the, um, the ministry spokesperson said that all of the inspectors had to use specialized equipment. They removed thousands of invasive mussels in the two days that it took them to decontaminate this barge. And they said many of those mussels were viable. I mean, they would have been multiplying as soon as they hit BC water there. And the, the, the Conservation Service is now saying this was the largest, most significant discovery of zebra mussels on a watercraft that their teams had ever experienced. And they said, you know, they had to mobilize really quickly. They were really impressed that they were able to do all that. But this shows you how much effort they are putting into making this happen, making sure that they keep these invasive mussels out of BC waters. So work to do for everyone on that. But yeah, lots of work being done on that front.